0: Welcome to JAT Chat, presented by the Journal of Athletic Training, the official journal of the National Athletic Trainers Association. My name is Dr. Kara Radzak, and I'm an assistant professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. The purpose of today's event is to provide an opportunity for healthcare professionals to get some more information on the manuscript entitled Global Positioning System Derived Workload Metrics and Injury Risk in Team-Based Field Sports, a Systematic review. And I'm also joined today by a clinician who utilizes um, wearable technology in her clinical practice. So I'd like to introduce my guest today. I'm joined by one of the authors of the manuscript, Natalie Kupperman, a doctoral student at the University of Virginia. And our clinician guest today is Jen Timkey. You, and Associate Director of Athletic Training Services at Northwestern University. At this point in time, thank you, Jen and Natalie, for joining me today. Thanks, Thanks Kara. Kara. So, Natalie, can you give us a little bit more background about what you're doing at the University of Virginia?
1: Yes, yeah, so I'm currently in my third year of my doctoral studies at UVA. Um, my research focus is in wearable technology, specifically in team-based sports. Um, there's a lot in wearables in team-based sports. Um, we're specifically focused more on the, the injury side or the athlete availability side and how we can leverage these technologies in athletic training.
0: Great. Thank you. And Jen, tell us a little bit more about um, your role at Northwestern.
2: So um, I am... The primary athletic trainer for our men's basketball program. Um, I'm going into my sixth season with them, and we have wearable technology that I've worked quite closely with Natalie with um, to help um, extract some of that data and give us a better idea of what we can and should be looking for on a daily basis um, in terms of both return-to-play metrics and then monitoring uh, potential risk mitigation factors throughout the season.
0: Perfect. Perfect symbiotic relationship of researcher and clinician. I love it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Some days.
2: <laughs> so
0: I, I want to hear from both of you guys, what jump started your interest in wearable technology? Natalie, let's start with you. Good question.
1: Um, I think, well, I worked at Northwestern for a while with Jen, which is how we know each other. Um, and really started there. I think the football team was the first one to have it. And the athletic turn at the time there was utilizing it. And, um, I've always been interested in research and there's a lot of data. So I was like, Hey, let's look at this. Um, which then kind of spiraled into, you know, more of an interest in taking more classes and how to deal with these really large data sets that come out of wearable tech. Uh, and then jump back to UVA to get my, uh, doctorate and decided that that was the research line to take.
2: Awesome. Jen? Um, Yeah, so like Natalie said, we started together. Um, After the football program started using the wearable devices, we switched over to it with the men's basketball program as well. And for me, it was how can we, we know what we're seeing with our eyes every day, but can we match that up to some sort of metrics that we can have some more subjective or some more objective measurements and really be able to take those into account um, one of our big driving forces too was the return to play. And if I had somebody out that was out for an extended period of time, how could we take that three or four month rehab and progress them appropriately back to the the loads, the jumps, the movements, those kind of things that we would we knew we needed to get them back to without potentially setting them up for further injury down the road. So how could we take some of those specific metrics and utilize them clinically? Thanks.
0: So, now let's dive a little bit more into this specific manuscript. So what was the impetus for going forward with the systematic review? Yeah. Well, uh, we started out,
1: uh, Jay and I wanted to do a meta-analysis of the current research because there hadn't been one done specifically looking at injury risk and the GPS wearable devices. Uh, however, we gathered all the data, went through all the papers, and realized none of these papers are done the same way. <laughs> there was no way we could do a meta-analysis. So that's how it turned into the systematic literature uh, review. Uh, so then from there, we narrowed the scope down to team sports, and that's mostly because um, the GPS component and the, the using the GPS and the Injury risk is mostly done in team sports with the wearables that we're interested in studying. Um, then there's a lot of different variables that we could look at. Um, so we ha- we made sure that there was at least two papers looking at each variable that we discuss in the literature review. Um, the variables we ended up using were total distance, which is pretty self-explanatory, the number of meters an athlete goes uh, during a practice, um, high speed running distance, uh, sprint running distance, max velocity exposure, uh, accelerations, decelerations, and then acute chronic workload ratio. Great. Uh, and then within there, there's a couple of different variations, but those are the main topics.
0: Yeah. So let's kind of chunk these up a little bit. Mm-hmm. When looking at the distance m- metrics, what did you guys kind of find? How are those distance metrics u- usable for a clinician? Yeah. So total
1: distance is probably the easiest one because there's no way to really divvy up total distance. You either completed the distance or you didn't. Um, I think total distance also really usable for clinicians because it's something we've, we already use, especially when you think about um, cross country and stress fractures the return to play is usually based on total mileage. Um, Where it gets a little dicier is when you get into the the high-speed running and the sprint running. And not because we don't know what high-speed running and sprint running is, it's because that threshold is different. Um, Every paper, every team sets a different threshold. Um, That threshold can be um, absolute. So just they went 18 meters per second. Or it can be a percentage of their max velocity. So if their max velocity is 12 miles an hour, we're going to call high speed running 80% of that. Mm-hmm. And that's where it got really hard to do that meta-analysis because every paper is just slightly different in how they, they calculate this. Uh, so okay.
0: did you guys end up with any, um, any recommendations based upon that or Uh, not really mostly that (laughs) the research is
1: very varied around injury risk and that as researchers we have um, a bit of a ways to go in making their research um, be able to give better recommendations for clinicians you know on a grand scale I think we can give recommendations um, and help clinicians on like a single team level that's how a lot of this these researchers research papers are done, is on a single team. So I think we're pretty good there. It's now expanding it to a greater scope and being able to add teams together and make more broad generalizations. So that's where research needs to get better about being more methodical and how we collect the data and analyze it so that we can add some of these together.
0: Perfect. So let's go into that um the acute chronic workload ratio give us a little bit more information about how what's the theory behind this metric and how is it calculated
1: yes the infamous acute chronic workload ratio uh so this is really just trying to look at um an athlete's fitness compared to their fatigue or actually the other way around that's their fatigue over their fitness so the acute workload is typically looking at the last seven days of an athlete's workload. And When I say workload, that can be any of the metrics I just talked about. Mm-hmm. You can say total distance. You know, it's whatever you, as a clinician, has decided is your key metric. So that acute is typically seven days. Every sport and practitioner can use a different day. Sometimes people use three. Some people use all up to ten. Um, but that's trying to. Um, quantify that fatigue. Then you have the chronic workload, which is trying to quantify someone's fitness. How much workload can they withstand? And that's typically the past 28 days of workload. Again, that can vary between 14 days up to 40 days in some research. So then you put that um, acute workload over the chronic workload. The higher the ratio, it's showing that there's more fatigue than there is fitness, Mm-hmm. Um, and, as everyone, knows, this, and I say as everyone knows, as many people know, this is quite a controversial metric. Um, when it was first proposed, there were thresholds that were given out as kind of the sweet spot and this danger zone. Uh, and I think what happened is people kind of clung to those numbers. And as athletic trainers, we know that injury risk is not boiled down to a single number or a single metric. So much goes into it um and then there was some graphs that people just like I said they just really clung to this metric I think while acute chronic workload ratio has not been able to perfectly predict injury risk in any sport um it's signaling something and I think as researchers we need to figure out what it's signaling or what should be used in conjunction with acute chronic workload ratio and I think clinicians it's worth still collecting it and monitoring it, but understand that just because someone goes over this 1.5 threshold into the danger zone doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be injured. And that's when you have to put on your you know, clinician hat and understand your patient population.
0: Thank you. So Jen, I'm going to put you on the spot now. Do you use this workload ratio?
2: Yeah. And... Yes. I use it in a little bit of different metrics than what Natalie described in her paper because we're an indoor sport, so we can't measure those distances. So we use more of a player load metric um, that looks at their accelerations, their decelerations, and their change of direction and kind of adds all of that up together so that now we have a more overall idea of that total uh, work, what that volume level was. Um, but as Natalie said, acute chronic workload, can that equation can be applied to any metric. So we've chosen that one as our stabilizing factor for an external force. Um, but you saw me bobbing my head when she was talking about those forces, because for us, it's just a piece of the overall puzzle. So when we have either a player or a team average that falls in or outside of that um, those recommended lines. For us, it's just that. It's a piece of, oh, we need to look at yesterday's practice a little bit more, or we need to pay attention to this person, or I need to go talk to them and see what their last week has been like so that we can have a further conversation. So it's not a huge warning sign, stop everything, all hands on deck, everything's got to change but more of a, hey, this has given us a really good idea of maybe something that we need to look more into.
0: Great. So what are some other things, Natalie, that you're utilizing in the wearable devices to inform your clinical practice? I think um, what's really nice about clinical practice
1: using wearables versus the research is that in clinical practice, you're, you're really dealing with an N of one. Right. that you're collecting on an entire team but as a clinician it's always just one patient sitting in front of you and the the ability to once you have the data I think the hardest part for a clinician is you know getting started and getting some actual data collected first there's something to historically go back and look at um is probably the one of the hardest parts but once you have that I think the ability like Jen was saying to go someone gets injured and then the ability to go back and say, well, what was their average total distance or player load at practice before they were injured? And then Mm -hmm. how can we, once they're uh, better and ready to return to play, how do we, you know, ramp them back up um, in a way that isn't going to predispose them to re-injury or another injury. Um, So I think for, for me, the ability to, really use this data, pair it down to one person because it's really easy to compare a person to themselves. The hard part is trying to take team data and systematically apply it to one person when that person is a very unique individual, especially um, all of this wearable stuff happens in elite sports and elite sports by definition is rare. (laughs) Um, And so it's not like we have tons, it feels like we have tons of data because we have lots of player observations, but we don't necessarily have lots of players um, to add together. Uh, So the ability to compare one person to themselves, I think is really helpful clinically and unique.
0: So then from a research standpoint, what are your recommendations for researchers that are utilizing this data? How can we start getting on the same page? Yeah. Um, I really think we need
1: to try as hard as we can to do hypothesis-driven research. Um, so much of this data is handed to us researchers after the season. Here's our last season of data. We want you to look at it and tell us something from yeah. it. And you're like, great, I have no idea how you collected this. Like three different GAs had their hands in this, and you know, this coach and that coach. And now I'm trying to like go back and be like, well, do you remember exactly why this looks like this? And no one remembers. I mean, Jen can tell you the season gets crazy and you're like, what day? Like, I don't know what you're talking about. So if now that we know that this is a ripe area of research, I think researchers need to get in with the teams during the season to help collect that data and set up systematic ways to collect the data and also have questions before the season so that we're collecting the right data along the way to analyze um, versus this trying to create a question out of a data set that we were given, which and I understand guilty because it's not wrong to do it that way. It's just, we'll get better research if we start with a question versus starting with the data set.
0: Completely understand. Um, so then Jen, what are some things that as a clinician, you really feel like research need, researchers need to be evaluating or um, some questions that you have that, that you really don't have answers to yet?
2: Um, I think a lot of it goes back to what Natalie just said in that at least initially for us, we had to figure out what we were going to look at. These wearables produce so much data that it can be so overwhelming that you just don't touch it and you don't want to look at it. So we really boiled ours down to just a few metrics um, I think the hardest part for me as a clinician was that patience factor in waiting for us to have enough data to be able to use it and look at it. Um, I work with a sport that has 13 to 15 athletes. It takes a while before you can even just look at our team and say, okay, this is some normative data. This is what we're looking at. Um, and Natalie and I are working on a project right now as well across a couple of different schools to try to figure out, all right, if at Northwestern, we have this many jumps during a practice, is that something that's similar to what's happening at Virginia or any other institution that's happening? So that when we do get these metrics, are we only comparing them just within our teams and within our individuals? Or is it something that we can make some more um, global standards or maybe potentially even more guidelines is probably the better word for that, uh, of having some of those guidelines that we can look at as clinicians and go, okay, here's what we're aiming for. Yeah. And I even think like just talking
1: between UVA and Northwestern just even trying to make our data collection, like how we sit at practice and collect that data similar Mm -hmm. is huge. And the more schools that we can get to collect data similarly, the easier it's going to be to start combining these, these data sets. Um, That's one thing that gets mentioned in the systematic review is that so many teams are concerned about competitive advantage and so they get kind of hush-hush about their wearable technology. Um, But in reality, as someone who's looked at a lot of different schools data, it's, you know, from one to two years back and there's no way I could take that wearable data and, you know, figure out, you know, how you're going to beat this opponent or, you know, get all your secret sauce uh, ingredients at all. Um, And especially when coming from athletic training, where we're just trying to look at how we can use this to prevent injury. I think everyone across the board in collegiate athletics wants to prevent injury and we're not trying to steal anyone's, you know, uh,
0: secrets, right? Secrets. Yeah. <laughs>
1: thank you. Um, so, uh, I hope that people can kind of start to understand that drop the competitive advantage thing. We're looking at retrospective data when we do mm-hmm. a lot of this research, um, But that talking to each other and at least trying to collect similarly can really help us in the future as we analyze this data.
0: Thank you. And Natalie, one of the things that you bring up in the paper is really getting to there's a difference between injury rate and injury risk. Can you talk us through that a bit? Um, I will. And sorry <laughs> if
1: I stumble <laughs> on this one. Even as a researcher who talks about risk and rate all the time, I still am like, oh, shoot, which one? Um, and I, that's the, re- the reason we can tend to get confused on this is just the way we talk to each other about injuries in athletic training and sports medicine. Um, we often say things like, oh, the rate of injuries is higher in this sport, therefore the risk of injury is higher, which mm-hmm. isn't necessarily uh, correct. So, an In epidemiology, injury risk is looking at the number of athletes who have at least one injury during a fixed period, like a season, whereas a rate takes into account, um, athlete time. So it's the, um, it's having at least one injury during, and then that's the top number. And the bottom number is going to be your athlete time. Mm-hmm. So number of athletes, Times the exposure, which is then when you hear things like, "Um, there was three point three funny bone injuries uh, per one hundred athlete hours." Um, it's where you get that athlete hours or athlete? It's usually athlete hours. Yeah. Um, the really novel thing with wearables is that we have the ability to even more precisely get rates. Um, this has I haven't seen this done yet in um, a lot of the literature. Most of the literature is still using risk for wearables. Um, however, because the wearables can tell us exactly how many minutes someone was in a game or in a practice, uh, we can start doing things like, like injury per athlete minute even. Mm-hmm. Um, and then beyond that, depending on how things are coded in practice, we can know exactly what was happening in that practice. So like the drills that they were going in If they were in the drill or out of the drill. So, even more precisely than just time at practice, we can get time actually played at practice or game. So, it can get, we could get very precise in this, which I think is, you know, no pun intended, game changing for sports uh, epidemiology. Um, We just have to get to the point where we're collecting data similarly so we can put it together. Um, And when I say data, not only wearable data, but also our injury data.
0: Right. So this really is like just the beginning of this field of research. It sounds like Mm -hmm. it's exciting. Yeah, I think so. When you look at the research, it can feel like a
1: lot of it is already accomplished and done because you have these titles that, oh, this predicts this. And it can feel like, oh, everyone knows all the answers and Mm -hmm. we're not there at all.
0: So how do we get started? Um, what are your recommendations? And Jen, we'll start with you. For a clinician who's not using this currently, how would you recommend somebody dip their toe into the waters?
2: Um, you have to decide what questions you're going to ask. There's quite a few different wearables out there and different systems and programs and it helps to know what questions you want and what you're looking for out of it. Are you looking for sleep metrics? Are you looking for heart rate variability? Are you looking for player load? Um, Those kind of things, because each of the systems is going to provide a little bit something different for you. Um, And for us here at Northwestern, it was a really big deal to sit down with our coaching staff as well. We needed to get buy-in from them um in order to move forward with the system that we chose in order to get them to get some feedback to the players to make sure that they were putting on the wearables every day and they weren't leaving them in their locker room and those kind of things so to help have buy in from the entire program really helps so not only having those questions from the sports medicine, sports performance side, but maybe also what your coaches are looking for as well will help get them buying into looking at some of those metrics on a daily basis as well.
0: Natalie, your recommendations for getting started?
2: Um, I think
1: just having a seat at the table to start um, specifically for athletic trainers, a lot of this um, data is being collected uh First by like the sports um, performance staff, and then athletic training is kind of a secondary player to come in. Um, I think this data can be crucial in athletic training and moving the athletic training field forward. So I think even if you don't know what metrics you want and you don't have a question, I think getting involved and making sure that you have, you know, that seat at the table and that you're in the conversations that for the performance staff is having with the coaching staff or having with the players um, is a great first step for clinicians. I also don't think everyone always realizes that um, not only can you use this in your current athletic training job, but there are now jobs coming on the market for athletic trainers, or I should say for sports medicine professionals. Mm I don't think they're always going to athletic trainers, but, to specifically look at this data in context of rehab and return to play and injury prevention on teams. Um, So even if you don't necessarily have access to this technology at your workplace, if it's something you're interested in, you know, going to sitting at webinars and learning about it so you can leverage yourself into one of these positions if you're interested.
0: Thank you. Now, Jen, what are some metrics that you found starting off with was really, um, really user friendly to get
2: started? Um, player load for sure, because that gave us an overall volume of what they were doing every day. It was, it was a number that, while abstract, we could start with and look at it, And it was something that made sense to me every day. It was something that made sense to our sports performance coach every day. It made sense to our coaches. So when we looked at just a flat number of player load, we went, okay, that's the volume. That's how much work they got in today. Um, to be able to look at that. And then when we first started, one of the big metrics for me was also their jumps. Um, so we chose a wearable that measures our jumps and in basketball, that's so important. Every jump up lands in a jump down. So you have to have that impact. And that impact was what was important for me in determining, especially with my lower body return to play uh, progressions of was I getting them enough impact? Sure, they could sprint till they were blue in the face and they were cutting, no problem. But was I, was I getting the appropriate amount of impacts to put them back into a practice or a game like situation? are the metrics that we started with and we still use on a pretty regular basis, even today.
0: Natalie, what metrics are you really excited about um, pe- people using from a universal standpoint? Uh, I'm with Jen. I think the, the
1: player load is one that is good and it's easy to talk about between teams. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So player load is basically just a summation of accelerations. Every acceleration or deceleration you take, it just gets added into this equation. So you have a uh, just one number. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, this is calculated by your wearable software. And many teams that we work with are wearing the same wearables. So we can easily talk about this between teams. And like Jen said, it's a volume-based metric. And volume-based metrics tend to be easier um, to compare. The other side of the metrics is intensity uh, however for intensity based metrics I find these really fascinating and I think it kind of gives that other side of the volume so not only how much did you do but how intense how fast did you do that motion however you need a time domain and depending on who's collecting your data and how it's being collected that time domain can be very hit or miss um, so collecting your data has to be very on it where they're working in the console and cleaning the data. Um, so it's much harder to compare even within a team, but very hard to compare across teams. Uh, so I think player load for volume, um, this is because you can get player load, I should say this also, player load also works for outdoor sports with GPS and mm-hmm. indoor sports when you're using only the inertial sensors. So that's another thing is you can you can more easily compare indoor and outdoor sports. And you can compare easily across teams and institutions. Um, And then intensity, you can take any metric and put it over a time. So player load per minute um, is an intensity metric that we can get indoor and outdoor. Um, Like I said, that time domain is a challenging one in data collection.
0: But then you're getting both the quantity and the quality. Exactly. Uh, And we think that that intensity
1: metric might be what the research is missing right now, especially when we talk about uh, like tendon injuries in like basketball. Basketball mm-hmm. is uh, one of my primary focuses here. So I think like like Jen, I think uh, in basketball a lot. So uh, trying to, we'll, we'll get that intensity one worked out here soon.
0: Awesome. So um, Jen, any other clinical pearls for people that are either getting into wearables or have been using them?
2: Um I we talked about injury rate and risk a little bit, and one of the big factors for me too was being able to separate out all of my injuries and get rid of those very acute ones that we have no control over mm-hmm. the the hand fracture, the ankle sprain because you land it on somebody's foot, those kind of things and really try to take out some of those more chronic injuries that happen, those tendon injuries that Natalie was talking about, the soft tissue injuries, and boil those down into things that we could mitigate that risk. Because as you're selling to all your stakeholders and all of those things about, hey, we should, we should put the funds into this situation, they're going to go, well, wait a minute, you were supposed to mitigate all of our risk, and we still had these injuries. So making sure that you have a good understanding of the metrics that you're looking at as well to uh, coordinate that um, I'm really excited about what wearables will do with uh, do for us in the current um, state because we will have student athletes who are in quarantine or isolation or things like that for an extended period of time, and having some of that historical data on their normative uh, levels will help us progress them back to an appropriate level of practice in games, even when it's a halted physical activity in the middle of the season that's maybe not injury-related. So, Natalie, I don't know how we're going to put the asterisks next to some of those injuries <laughs> when it's pandemic-related wow. instead of injury-related.
1: <laughs> It'll be its own special paper. They'll, I'm sure there'll be special editions pretty soon on COVID-related like, research, yes, so we'll just I submit am. there. <laughs>
0: They're already coming
1: out. <laughs> They're already coming out.
0: That's, <laughs> that's, that's actually <laughs> that's such a good point. I didn't even think about it, but it's it's really true. You can now see, okay, if you're told, go, we need to start getting ready because the season's been put
2: on hold. you know where you have to ramp them up to right, and it's unique in that oftentimes when you're um removed from sport for an injury. You're still doing other things. You have an upper body injury and you're still on the bike. You're still lifting with your other arm, those kind of things. This has created a really unique situation in that you're halted from activity. So, how do we take that complete halt and translate it back to being ready? And again, potentially in the middle of your competitive season. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: That's really interesting. So Jen, I'm going to stick with you for a second. What changes to your clinical practice have you made based on using
2: these um, wearable technology? Um, not, I wouldn't say that my clinical practice has completely um, changed, but it's been another, another piece to the puzzle. Mm-hmm. Um, it's another metric that we can look at and use that system and compare it with. Um, We've also worked really hard to get uh, both wellness and RPE numbers so that we have a subjective internal load as well and take that into consideration with the wearables um, so that we're getting an internal and an external load from the student-athletes to make sure that we're getting the overall better picture Mm-hmm. Um, again, and I've used it in a majority of the return to play progressions that we've had. Um, it's very different to put an injury back on the court that's only been out for one or two days. But when they've been out for three or four months or something an extended period of time, the system has become extremely helpful in making sure that we're progressing appropriately rather than doing the guesswork that we were doing before. Thank you. And
0: Natalie, and. Any last parting bits of advice?
1: Um, Yeah, I think we've talked a lot about wearables. Obviously, it's a wearables chat. Um, However, not everyone is in elite athletics. And even if you're in elite athletics, you might not have thousands or tens of thousands or in some cases, hundreds of thousands depending on your system uh, to put towards this. Uh, But know that there are ways to calculate a workload Um, and start to use this in your clinical practice. Like Jen mentioned RPEs and wellness. You know, there's a thing called session RPE where you take uh, the rating of perceived exertion from a practice and you times it by the duration in minutes, which gives you um, some kind of workload to start with. And even that can be helpful. So um, don't be turned off from trying to figure out ways to use workload in your clinical practice just because you don't have fancy systems like we're talking about, here. Uh, I think there are definitely ways to dip your toes in the water. Um, And then if you do have a system, uh, don't be afraid to try to dive in and start to look at some of these these metrics. It gets less scary the more you look at it. Don't just look at the big spreadsheet of all the numbers. Try
0: to look at the dashboards. (laughs) Perfect. Anything else before we close out? Well, thank you guys again so very, very much, um, and if anybody would like to continue this conversation, um, we can continue it on Twitter or any of JAT's social media platforms with the hashtag, hashtag J- JAT chat, chat chat, and like all other JAT materials, the The systematic review by Natalie and Dr. Jay Hurdle is available through JAT's online platform free of charge. So again, thank you so much, Natalie and Jen, for joining me today.
1: Thank you.